in real estate or the world in general, people do not have to work for you. And so really every day we're, we're giving people great reason to work for us. And that's really our job. And that comes back to great culture. Hi, this is Matt Slepin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on September 24th, is an interview with Marshall Boyd and Julia Boyd Corso, the co-heads of Interstate Equities Corporation, a West Coast-focused multifamily value-add investor with now about $1 billion of assets under management. At the risk of redundancy from what you'll hear on the episode, I've known Marshall and Julia from about the time they together came in to take over their parents' business. All along, I've been hugely impressed with their level of desire, focus, and especially always having uncommonly actively open ears to their peers, colleagues, and competitors for learning and improvement. And this conversation for the podcast just confirmed that level of intentionality and thoughtfulness behind their leadership. This is particularly interesting in a family business moving from G1 to G2. There's a lot of wisdom in this episode that echoes from these young leaders the themes from many of the best leaders we've heard on the show. This will be bookends to our two October episodes, both with Silicon Valley-based companies. Today, which is actually my 65th birthday, you'll hear Julie and Marshall. And in two weeks, you'll hear my conversation with industry legend Ned Speaker. Bookends indeed with this episode is the conversation I've been wanting to have with under 40 leaders and then a legend conversation with Ned. Thanks as always to my company, Terra Search Partners, for sponsoring the show. As search professionals, we get to think about these qualities of leadership every day in our business. There's both a science of what we do, really in the identifying and finding of people, and there's most certainly an art in what we do around the engagement with and assessment of both our clients and candidates. Ours is the kind of business where if you're good, you get better and better over the years, where that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours principle really applies. I've been privileged and frankly humbled to have had these conversations in my work at Terra Search Partners and even more so in these conversations on leading voices that I get to share with my listeners. Thank you. Did I say it was my birthday? Well, your gift to me is to keep on listening to the show and sharing episodes with your colleagues and friends. Your listening gives me the cover to keep doing the show, which I truly could not do without you. Almost every time being on my side of the microphone with these guests blows me away and always raises my bar. And more importantly for me, and hopefully also for you, the accumulated wisdom from these conversations has become part of who I am and invest my understanding of the business and the world. No kidding. So for my birthday gift, please indeed share the show with a friend. And as always, please feel free to email me at matt at with comments and suggestions for the show. I hope that you enjoy the episode. So, Marshall and Julia, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and welcome in person to the podcast studio at the Keller Street co-working space here in Petaluma. We've wanted to have this conversation. We've been talking about this for several years, and so I'm thrilled to be able to do this, and especially in person with both of you. So thank you. Thank you. Let me set the stage a little bit. We've three have known each other for a long time. I think maybe from since you first came into the business that was your parents' business, and it was just prior to the financial crisis. So put some time focus on this. And we've been friends. We've been business colleagues. We've worked together on several searches for you guys as you built your team. And as I said to you the other day, 
I've experienced from you both since we first met that you have had a humble quest to figure out what this business would look like and who you would be as professionals in this business because you both came from outside the business and you've looked at others, you've looked for advice and you've built the company thoughtfully from that perspective, which has always really impressed me with the authenticity and meaning of coming from that place. Those are the kinds of things we're gonna talk about on the podcast today. We're gonna talk about your coming into a family business and moving into a next generation, but a very different business model. We're gonna talk about what it's like to be co-CEOs as brother and sister, which is really interesting. And we'll talk about your business model, the value-add investment business model and multifamily on the West Coast and what that means and what the special challenges are about that. So maybe each of you kind of introduce yourself briefly and give kind of an overview of the business and start with Julia. Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having us and for your kind introduction. Um, So I'm Julia Boyd-Corso. I'm IEC's co-president and COO. In that role, I'm responsible for overseeing our corporate departments, our asset management group, and the property management group, because we are a vertically integrated firm. I also sit on the investment committee, which I co-lead with Marshall, and we make all of our corporate decisions together. My background is I graduated from Emory University, where I majored in economics. From there, I went into strategy consulting at Accenture, where I had the opportunity to help various companies across different industries solve process and strategy issues that they were having in their organizations. After Accenture, I moved on to Stanford Business School, where I really focused on finance coursework Mm -hmm. and decided to pivot into real estate. From there, I joined IEC in 2005, and I've been co-president for the last 14 years. I'm Marshall. My background, so I'm I'm our CIO and equal partners with my sister, Julia. By background, uh, you know, the two of us grew up in Palo Alto, went to Gunn High School. I sold sneakers and worked at a snack bar and, you know, did, did various things. It was easier to work than to than to ask our parents for money. And then went to Middlebury for undergrad, ran cross country and track there, got to see a little bit of the country that way. And then through being in New England, got an understanding for investment banking a little bit and realized that actually it was 2002 and there was real investment banking happening back in Palo Alto. And so joined the technology group for CSFB in Palo Alto after graduating and worked under Frank Quattrone. And famous guy, really at famous a famous guy. time. And continues to be famous in that uh-huh. industry. So really cut my teeth on the on the finance side and had a lot to learn, frankly, as a liberal arts kid surrounded by, you know, Wharton undergrads. Um, so that was that was trial by fire, which was fantastic. And then moved on from banking, you know, in, in 2002, tech banking uh, suddenly became less present. So went on to uh, work at TA Associates in the West Coast office, not TA Realty, but TA, the private equity firm buying private companies, which was the, the parent company that spun out eventually the, the real estate group. And so was was a young associate writing memos about private companies we wanted to invest in and grow. And then when I was 27, thinking about business school, Julia had made the jump very successfully to business school. I was I was evaluating it. And then our father sadly passed away in his 50s from cancer and kind of reevaluated this funny real estate business he'd been running all these years and said, gosh, it's it's a really neat business. And um, and Julia's there and this place is about to change a lot. And I'd like to be part of it. And so so gave my notice and, and with the support of the TA partners, both financially and emotionally, joined up with Julia and said, let's let's do this thing. And that was 2007 when you joined. It was early it, 2007. It, we're going to get to your company in a second, but I'm just curious if you take Frank Quattrone, the top tech investment banker through history here, 
is there a contrast to the kind of business you did and the way he thought and thinks about that business and the real estate business, which is just so different? But So what are any observations about that? I think the culture of investment banking is sometimes lacking. You know, good folks working really hard, but they're, they're not real concerned about how you feel about anything. Mm-hmm. It's very transactional by nature. And so that didn't totally resonate with me. Uh, working really hard resonated with me, but the other parts, you know, I, I saw the happiness of the folks in the office. And sometimes that was like, gosh, do I want to do this? Now I will say conversely, being at TA Associates and seeing the fiduciary mindset of those partners and that you didn't have to be bombastic or, or allowed in the room to be a great steward of investment dollars, that really made an impact on me. And mm-hmm. so that was when I felt, gosh, investing feels like a place I want to spend time uh, versus the transaction side in banking. And then you got into the transaction side in real estate, but we'll come to that in a few minutes, but still right. different because you, you hang on to these things in a different way. Right. They have a different reality to them. I think that's right. That's right. And and I loved pairing with, with, with Julia's background on the consulting side. Yes. Yeah, so if you take each of those prior experiences, plus growing up around this business, then joining it is really interesting. So just for context for this, what is the current business? What's the portfolio? Where is the portfolio? And what is it? Sure. So we invest exclusively in value-add multifamily on the West Coast. So traditionally, historically, that's been in California, as far north as Napa down to San Diego. So all coastal California. And then now we're starting to move into Seattle. So outside of the state, we're vertically integrated. So we're operating at the site level as well. Um, So we have a larger team. We invest with commingled funds and we're now on fund five. In total, we have 2,500 units across 23 assets and we're continuing to, you know, stick to the thesis that's brought us success historically. Uh-huh. And if you think of 2,500 units, 23 assets, to our national audience, that feels small and focused. But sure. the turn of this about the number that have been through the pipeline is much, much greater than that. Just talk about that for a second. Sure. So we own for traditionally three to five years on average. Mm-hmm. And so we're acquiring an asset repositioning it substantially and then leaving it better than we found it. And so at this point, we're probably close to 150 end to end cradle to grave sales of assets. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a reasonable amount, amount of turnover in our portfolio. So it's 150 in addition to the 23 during right. your tenure with the company. Yes. And then probably what's different about us at this moment is that we've stayed in our lane doing that same thing. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll ask the question, if you stay in the lane on value add, do you move into the lane of core plus alongside that? Is that a strategic thing? And is that still in the lane or would you articulate that as out of the lane? I think the lane is our geographies mm-hmm. because we we you know need to see, we need to know everything that's moving on a block by block basis in our cities. And so going deeper makes more sense than going broader. Mm-hmm. And one way to go deeper would be owning longer or owning newer assets. And that, that makes more sense to us than picking up four additional states. That, that is not, not something you'll see IEC doing. Cool. We've talked about your father's passing, but your parents worked together in some ways as you worked together. So talk about what the role between your dad and your mom about this, which is interesting, and then what business they had that you then inherited or took over when you came into it. Yeah, absolutely. So James Boyd, Jim Boyd. Our late father, you know, he was a he was a professor of economics at UCSB, and um, he actually moved to the Bay Area to work as the 
first in-house PhD at what is now Essex. Uh, he worked there for, for I think, about six months wow. before they had a parting, a, a parting of ways and started IEC in 1981. And so, you know, that was a syndication business at, at that point. And really, the Jim was not a guy you would see at conferences. He was definitely not a person uh, on podcasts, although I don't know that you'd see us on, on other podcasts as well. Uh, we like to be below the radar. But his, his real mission was to just fight like hell for his friends and family and defend their capital and make places to live that people appreciate. And if you can make money doing that, he, he found a lot of, lot of pleasure in that and really having that kind of academic approach to which city is going to grow, which city has the job base. Like he was studying, writing white papers. <laughs> he, was, he was not your typical real estate gunslinger. Uh-huh. And your parents did this together. So what was your mom's role? And was this your dad's was the driver versus co-CEOs? That's what I'm trying to I'm curious about. So the partnership that they had, really, our, our dad was a big personality, and he was, for certain, de facto leader of the company. Uh-huh. Our mom um, was a very important advisor. She ran the accounting department. Uh-huh. You know, they worked together and made all the major business decisions together. But yes, Jim was, for the most part, you know, the, the leader. And uh, it worked out really well. And they definitely had a lot of dynamics in the office and then dynamics at home where they would be discussing work all the time. So it was really neat as children to watch this relationship and this partnership in both environments. So I don't know that that informs specifically how Marshall and I co-lead because I think we're both leading the organization and we both have our own verticals, but um, it was certainly a great experience to be Uh witness to. I I had a client a couple years ago and he said, I want to hire someone who grew up in a real estate family. Mm. And I'm like, well, why is that? He goes, because they're 10 years older than they might appear to be, or the resume is 10 years deeper because they actually listened in the car to every conversation they knew what was going on. And osmosis. My daughter, like her level of osmosis about this is scary because she's heard more candidate conversations in the car. And when it was over, as an eight-year-old, she'd like start criticizing the candidate or something well, crazy. Well, it's no, it's no accident. With a father who is a, you know, economics professor, it's no accident that Marshall and I and our sister all became econ majors. Uh-huh. Exactly. And then what was the business that he had built, too, in the syndication model? Was it a longer-term hold with these syndication friends and stuff. So what did it look like when you took it over? So that's really what we're proud of is we've institutionalized the business and brought brought a lot of process and a lot of smart partners and team members in to join us and, mm-hmm. and, and up our game. But what we've preserved is, is the business model, which is effectively buying this housing that we think is not treated particularly well by high net worth owners, which are the mm-hmm. vast majority of owners of apartments. And that's where the roof is leaking and the, and the tenants' work orders are not filled. And so if we can go in and, we, and do our upgrades, but also improve the infrastructure and make it a, a place to live that people are proud of, that's the same model that was being done in 1980 that we're still doing today due to the housing shortage. And so that's where we can come in and make it a better place to live. And if we're successful in that, then, then renters vote with their feet. That part we've really, we've really stuck to our knitting on. And, and we see the returns as being so consistent, especially relative to the risk profile, that, that, that that's really what drew us to the business. Mm-hmm. When you came in, was there thousand units? Was it vertically integrated? Were there a bunch of partnerships that you had to ultimately unwind? What, let's talk about that. Sure. So in 2007, the firm was raising sequential high net worth funds that were 10 to $30 million in assets. It also had a small separate account with a pension fund. So the total AUM at that time was about 80 million. Mm-hmm. We had about 70 associates and that includes corporate as well as the site teams. The number of units was approximately 2000 as well. So very similar in size, 
but it had a really small corporate team and it was non-institutional by background. So there's really one senior person besides our mom working <laughs> in the company. Wow. The company had no um, capital formation. It had no acquisitions team. It had no asset management team. It was really just property management and accounting. We are happy to say that there's two associates who have been with us since they were basically hired before we were, who remain with us in uh, transactions as well as HR. So that's mm -hmm. neat heritage to continue with. But basically the company was a thesis and a track record. And it really, we saw that as an opportunity given our backgrounds, working in more institutional environments and consulting and private equity to bring fresh eyes and to take this business to the next level. Uh -huh. And when you saw that thesis, how prescient were you about what it might become? Did you view it like it is today? What are the surprises today from what you then came in and say, we're going to get it to this? Well, we knew there was danger in straying from thesis. We'd mm -hmm. heard enough stories of others who decided to go to states they weren't familiar with, go into products they weren't familiar with. Let's go to Texas and, and deal with the supply issues there. We weren't interested in, in going that way. We were wanting to exercise caution and continue what had worked. And so that really was our you know North Star is sticking to the thesis, doing what had worked, but doing it in a more institutionalized and professional way at a larger scale. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think the thesis of joining up together seemed much more rosy early in 2007 than it felt early in 2008. I bet. And so, nice. you know, that's like the Mike Tyson analogy of, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And, you know, it, you know we, we felt that pain as well. And that accelerated our learning through the GFC. We had made a, a really fortunate sale in early 07, but th those assets that we did not sell, we managed through and we learned, we learned asset management. Mm -hmm. We cut payroll, we cut expenses at assets. We worked with investors through tough times and you know, the unpopular conversations in your 20s with investors you just met. You know, th those were really learning moments for us um, that, that really formed the way we think about it really investing the rest of our career, most likely, because it was, those are scary times. Crucible, the GFC or the SNL crisis in my generation is, is really important actually, because you learn and that's when you grow and you had to do it. So what age were you when you came together? Age is approximate. Sure. And how did you view doing it together? The, str the strengths, weaknesses, and risks of brother and sister coming in and co-leading this thing. We didn't have a grand plan, I don't think, for, <laughs> for where we were going to go, because we knew, frankly, we had a lot to learn about the business. We hadn't worked in real estate before, but here we were at 27 and 29 becoming co-presidents of this company. And that was the point at which we were introduced to Park Hill, which was a, a placement agent. So yeah. talk about that. After that sale in 2007, you know, we, we were feeding the company with that promote that we had earned. So that which we had earned in 2007 is that which fed the company until we figured out our capital path going forward. So it was, so the track record looked very good. Uh, we'd really served the investors, but at the same time we were feeding the firm with that profit mm -hmm. and, and then with the long-term vision for the firm. And so that profit was rapidly going away as 2008 went on, 2009. And we needed to figure out a path on capital. And it was something neither of us had known from our backgrounds. We ended up in a, I think the first fund we raised was $8 million ourselves. They were probably 45 steak dinners and, you know, tough conversations with just private individuals, friends of friends, writing $100,000, $200,000 checks. So still the syndication model. Still the syndication model. And that was to keep the lights on. And then we were, I was in New York doing some, some meetings and a, and a friend said, would you like to meet with Park Hill? I, I didn't know who they were, uh -huh. um, you know, and they're 
probably one of the world's leading placement agents. Mm-hmm. And they were owned by Blackstone at the time. And, and Michael Stark was nice enough to take a meeting. He still co-leads that group. And he said, I'll, I'll make a few introductions for you. And so made five or six introductions. And, and one of those was the, was the Harvard University Endowment, mm-hmm. which was a huge break for us. We're really excited to obviously serve the mission of an investor like that, but also just up our game. And um, we were one of the very first separate accounts with Harvard. And, um, and so we were their exclusive investment group for multifamily on the West Coast from 2010 to 2014 mm-hmm. and learned a tremendous amount. Scaled the business, did a series of projects together, learned a lot, worked through kind of things that we wanted to correct in the business, upgraded various things. We first met each other around then, before Harvard, I think. And I came to your office, and for our listeners to think about this, because, hey, here's kids of someone who had a real estate company, so they're rich kids, Silver Spoon, they're taking over a business, this is easy, they're on third base, this is cool. And I had the opposite experience, which is, Ooh, here's an office. It looks dead. These guys are scared. They're kids. What the heck? And I think that's what Harvard saw, but they saw all the potential in you and the thesis. So sorry, I didn't mean to offend you with Not at <laughs> all. With, yeah. with that observation from that time. And I think it was a cloudy, rainy, crappy day in, in Palo Alto or something when we got together. So from that place, you were able to land that account, which is magic but they were betting on something special. They saw something in you. Any thoughts about that? Well, I'll give one story and and we have a lot of advantages, right? With the parents being who they were and the infrastructure and the thesis, like just a a blessing. But the worst thing in the world is missed missed opportunity, right? And missed Mm -hmm. potential. And that was something we were worried about. I remember explicitly calling Harvard when we first had the separate account and calling them and saying, well, you pay asset management fees normally at the end of the quarter. We normally collect it at the beginning of the quarter. Uh And they said, oh, that's, why is that? No, nobody else does that. And in reality, we, we weren't going to make payroll that quarter. We were tough. literally out of our profit tough. share from our 07 sale, and um, we weren't going to make payroll. And so they said, okay, that sounds reasonable. We'll pay at the beginning of the quarter. We still collect our asset management fees at the beginning of the quarter to this day, and it's a funny reason why. We explained to folks as they as they enter the firm. So it was, it was a close call. And from that, we said, gosh, we, we need to capitalize on this. We have to perform for these folks and, mm-hmm. and make, them, make them returns, but also make them comfortable that we can do this. So that was go time for us. Hey, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing you on the same point, though. They're making a bet on two under 30-year-olds or around 30-year-olds with great backgrounds and a really good business thesis, but they entrusted you. This is a personal thing. So it's just interesting because there's a lot of people are asking the same question and a lot of people not getting the nod for that. Sure. I know that one of the factors in it was our decision to sell all of our institutional assets in 2007. There were a lot of questions during diligence on attribution, and certainly most of the history had been attributable to our father's era and the work that he had done. But in the time that we had been part of the business, we had sold this portfolio for our separate account successfully, and we had navigated through the downturn until the point at which we had met them and we had emptied our pockets. We had emptied, we'd like pulled money out of houses. We had pulled every credit line just to support our team and and stay alive. And I think Mm -hmm. that they saw that we had executed discipline and did have some of the attribution and the track record and that we were just so hungry to perform. I think that they saw that and knew that we would do everything we could as fiduciaries to deliver on our returns to them. It's interesting the thing I said at the top of the conversation about your being humble and wanting to accomplish this business really well and thoughtfully. I think they saw that part of it. They saw your openness to that 
in addition to, hey, we have a business model that works. I'm pounding the table here. But, and here's people who are open to figuring it out. What, what did you have to do to the organization now that you had that capital and there were only two people before, so now you have to bootstrap an organization and you can't afford to bootstrap where it's gonna be, so you have to right. do it where it is then. Yeah, it was an exceptional learning opportunity. I mean, we learned so much about the institutional space through that relationship. HMC is a smart and demanding client, you can imagine, right? So we learned so much about scaling, team building, partnership. I mean, as we scaled, there were definitely growing pains right? Times like you're saying where we didn't have the funds to make that next amazing hire mm -hmm. and we just had to make it work. So at times as we were running full speed ahead at building this portfolio with them, we bought 16 assets with them in, in rapid sequence between 2010 and 2012. Sometimes it felt like we were you know, trying to change our track shoes in the middle of the 400, if you will. Right. Right. You're trying to upgrade and to institutionalize and deliver process while you're doing all of this transaction work as well. But talk about the best learning opportunity ever. I mean, Marshall and I've talked about how it's like almost like a second MBA. It right. was an incredible couple of years where we learned how to serve the needs of one of the more demanding clients in the world. <laughs> and learning how to meet their expectations, learning how to deliver on the process and reporting requirements. By the time we had wrapped up that relationship, we really felt like if we can serve them, like mm -hmm. we can do this fun business. Mm -hmm. Like we're ready, we know mm -hmm. what to do and we can be successful. And it's interesting because if you're serving the syndication business, you're leading your investors versus your investors are leading you. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to have that discipline. They just trust you kind of. And here you have someone who actually knows more than you do about what they need. So therefore, it does have to raise your game in a different way. It's very true. I think of it as you, know, you kind of told act as if and really our, our clear goal from that $8 million fund on was to have discretion to be able to fight for our investors with full discretion. We wanted to treat that relationship like the fund that we wanted to have next. And that really was, that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. And so it was doing those extra steps back then, not because somebody was asking you to do them, but just taking those extra steps as if we had full discretion. So I think that's really what, what has allowed us to make that next leap. Uh -huh. And did you sort out your roles? Because you have a small team. So A, talk about the roles that you now play and then played, and I assume they're about the same in the company. I know you talked about the top, but now it has more context for that. And were you player coaches in that because you had to roll up your sleeves in each of these functional areas around that even then that made a small team work? Yeah, when we arrived at the business, we were in every meeting together because we, we had a lot to learn. And so we were just figuring it all out. What we eventually figured out was to divide and conquer. So you know, we're, we're happy to be to go into the verticals when needed. What's really exciting now is we, we start to have the currency to bring in people that do those things better than we do. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's that's sort of that next blush is having a proper private equity firm versus the, the, the scrappier days of, of just blocking and tackling. So. Yeah, early on we were overlapping pretty significantly, but as you were asking about the uh, the transition to a more institutional team, there were certain team members that, you know, wonderful, sweet people who had been with the firm, but they were not institutional by nature. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, you know, a friendly parting with some of them. And then mm -hmm. it was amazing to work with Terra Search on finding excellent team members who had our entrepreneurial spirit, but also an institutional background and could help us meet the demands of, you know, 
higher expectations of an institutional client. Mm -hmm. And so we were really able to build out those that team. And during that time, and it was during the separate account experience with Harvard, Marshall moved more toward the acquisition part of our business. And I created the asset management part of our business hired a director of property management, and then ultimately, as you know, recruited a director of asset management to backfill me when I became COO. Mm -hmm. And Marshall and I still stay extremely close to our verticals and, as he said, serve in a player coach manner. But it's been really exciting to bring in all of this amazing talent to trust and empower them to execute. And they understand our thesis. We work so closely together, but they're they're so capable and empowered to do to execute on their own within their their workspace mm -hmm. and we just feel honored to work with these team members and frankly share in the alignment of the rewards of of that as well mm -hmm. and talk about culture in that regard this is your business but it's your team's business in some ways too so how do you share that equity wise i i had a lot to learn about culture when i came into the business you know, being a former investment banker, I just yeah. didn't know a lot about it. But we've really come to embrace it and, and understand how valuable, how darn valuable it is. It turns out people don't have to work for you. I mean, investment banking, it feels a little bit like that. Mm. In, uh, in real estate or the world in general, people do not have to work for you. And so really every day we're, we're giving people great reason to work for us. And, and that's, that's, our, that's really our job. And that comes back to great culture. And so we spend a lot of time reiterating it. It helps us have people make decisions autonomously in the field because they can think back to the cultural standards and think, does this hold up? It mm -hmm. really helps us with hiring, which was a surprise. In our co-CEO role, that's probably one of the most fun things we spend time on thinking about. And it's really energized us in this kind of next stage of the business is focusing on that and then seeing the rewards from it. Right. And to give that some context, so our cultural values are integrity, teamwork, commitment, humility, and grit. And for us, these are really operationalized. When we mm -hmm. recruit team members, and you know, as we've done search, mm -hmm. we will ask these questions and our team, as they interview candidates, will debrief after an interview session and say, you know, did that person demonstrate the grit or the teamwork that we need from our team members that we're mm -hmm. looking for? Did they articulate teamwork experiences from their background that demonstrate that they're a great fit? So it's really wonderful to see our team utilize our cultural values to find new team members who will be an excellent fit and carry that culture forward. This last summer, we were recognized as a great place to work by the Great Place to Work organization. Uh -huh. And as part of that process, our team completed a culture survey. And it was really rewarding to see that one of the a couple of the top metrics that we received recognition on was teamwork and integrity these are two of our cultural values. And uh, so it's it's great to see that our, our team really lives these values. They're, they're not just platitudes. It's the walk that matters. It's interesting. If I ask anyone on this podcast what their cultural values are, they will come up with words that are just great. Yeah. But I think some companies are the star system. And maybe that's the difference, the star system versus the team system. And you're describing the team system. Almost no one says we're the star system, except for maybe investment banking. So they wouldn't fess up to it. But it is how they work. And then it is interesting through a survey like that, best place to work. Yeah. It's what your mem team members say about working for you that does translate into the reality. I think another key thing that is different about us is having my co-CEO be our COO. You know, we're very much asset management first. You know, a lot of the value is created through asset management. And I think there's a misunderstanding in real estate that all the value is created on the buy or on the sell. And that is, that is false. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really empowers the team 
to see that they're at the front of the ship with the investment people. Uh-huh. And I feel like that's a little different than the feel at other firms. And it and that's the majority of the personnel, right, is, is at the property level. And so we want to honor them and, and respect the amount of value that they bring. So let's put a pin in that and come back to asset, what you call asset management, but it's really execution. And it's interesting, one of the thesis of the podcast, so I'll give the secret to everybody here, is that the platform is equal to the importance of the assets. So if you think two sides of the real estate business, oh, it's all about the deals. It's all about the financing. It's all about the money and the acquisitions. It's a little macho. And then the other is, it's all about the platform, and the platform really is where the value and differentiator is created. Now, they're both true, but I think they have virtually equal value versus, no, it's all about the deals. Let me pound my chest. Look, I think uh, there's a right business model for, for the right temperament of person. I think there's a there's a fantastic path of, of high net worth funds for the right person. I think I think the JV business is super interesting for the right person. It was not the right fit for us. It didn't fit our, our style, and and the folks in that in those areas didn't resonate with us. But we did find our lane in the commingled fund space. Yep. It's hard to get there, and so many funds want to do it, and they all can't because they're not Blackstone. Except the ones who can't, who aren't Blackstone, are small versus medium. Maybe I don't know. But how do you actually accomplish that? There, I mean, there was a, a bit of hard-headedness that, that is what, you know, it wasn't just bestowed upon us. So mm-hmm. when we decided to go down the path of the, of the commingled fund, we put our pencils down on, on new deals more or less for almost a year and a half. We did probably 100 meetings around the country and got to know the whole community of institutional folks, usually through cold calls. Well, always through cold calls. Um, placement agent or yourselves? Uh, we did that ourselves. And so it was just organically getting out and talking to people and, and making relationships and finding who, who we resonated with, um, who, who was looking for us and who we were looking for. And it was a skinny time again, because stepping away from the market to, to focus on this was, was costly. But we, we, had, we built a team to focus on it. We had the resources to work on it and, um, and ultimately found a group of like-minded endowments, foundations who really saw the, the, the kind of history of what we'd been up to. Um, our path resonated with them. So let's talk about value-add multifamily West Coast. We'll talk about different tranches. But one is one of the interesting things about the business with a three- to five-year hold is you have an accordion of both number of assets, size and scale, assets flowing through the Python all the time, having an organization that accomplishes that well, and having an organization focused on that niche of investment when that may be a challenge niche Sometimes. So maybe first start about what you had said before, which was, Marsha, you called it asset management, but I call it execution. Think about each of those and how that fits within the context of this business. Sure, I can speak to the accordion nature of the business. So our holds, as mentioned, are about three to five years on average, but our portfolio is extremely dynamic. So we're always buying something, we're repositioning assets, we're often disposing at moments that are opportunistic. Um, the portfolio has been anywhere between 1,000 and 2,500 units, but they're all within the same geographies. So generally, we haven't felt the need. We've always, you know, there's key roles that you always need. Mm-hmm. And with at least 1,000 units, we just really have not had to do layoffs. So the portfolio might accordion within that range, but it hasn't meant massive team disruption. Once you have consistency of accordion, it's a real song yeah. <laughs> versus just a moment in time where it's oops. But that's, of course, exactly. it keeps and if- going. 
And if you were going in and out of different states, uh, now I need a regional in Arizona and I don't need a regional in Southern California, you, you know, that would create more disruption. Mm -hmm. We're always going to need a regional in Southern California. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there are some groups in, within the, the certain positions that mm -hmm. accordion a little bit more. So when you sell assets, certainly team members at the site level mm -hmm. aren't always going to remain with the organization, but we are very dedicated to maintaining employment opportunities for them. One other important thing is because we have the commingled fund, we have fees that come in. You know, our investors pay us to invest for them, even those dollars that we have not deployed yet. Mm -hmm. And so if you were doing a syndication model with the three to five year model, the revenue would move much more volatile basis. Mm -hmm. With the private equity model, you know, our revenue stays relatively constant, which allows us to maintain the team in nice ways. Mm -hmm. Supports the platform. And then to meet the goal and to meet great returns. IRRs are based on time in part, so you have to move quickly. So talk about a typical asset that you might buy, where it comes from, what it looks like when you get it, what it looks like when you then sell it. Yes, yeah, so there's really two lines of business that we're in. One is, is acquiring from the high net worth community. And so, you know, those are not optimized assets. In some cases, they are slumlorded when we acquire them and we aim to fix that. In some cases, they're just a little sleepy because uh, the owners are, are doing other things with their lives. And so those- Sleepy versus slumlord. Okay, I want to yes. hear the difference, but that's, keep going. Absolutely. And so th those assets will go in and fix the habitability issues. We'll go in and ask the tenants what we can fix to make their life more comfortable. And then when, as there are vacancies, we will look to upgrade those units. We'll look to add to the infrastructure of the building, roofs, windows, balconies, you know, doing real work to transform those assets and make them a place that folks of that same demographic can live in afterwards, which is a really important distinction. That's the high net worth deals. On the unloved institutional deals, there are deals that institutions at times sell that are really interesting to us as well. And so those are, those are more specific thesis where we'll go in and think about something very specific that a resident would want in those units and add it to the living experience. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to the same demographic to, can live in, but then talk about what with those kinds of assets, what you wind up doing so well. And when I have visited with you before, I think of it as a sprint because you're sprinting towards an IRR. This is not like, oh, we'll get to it when we get to it. There's not a lot of that. Right. So if we think about a given three-year hold in year one, we come in and immediately address all the resident work orders. We ask them, what can we repair in your unit? We do unit by unit inspection and bring the units up to a, a habitable level if the prior owner did not do so. Mm -hmm. We then take care of all of the safe life safety issues that we find during our diligence process. So we're talking about roof repair, balcony replacement, seismic retrofit, trip hazards, siding, all of these types of major infrastructure projects. Mm -hmm. Then just naturally, you know, in our in our industry, apartments have approximately a 50% annual turnover turn anyway. Residents just turn naturally. And so when those units vacate naturally, we renovate those units. And typically those renovations are, you know, twelve to $20,000 in cost. And it can include getting rid of you know, gross existing brown carpet and replacing it with nice hard surface vinyl plank, taking out old linoleum countertops and putting in quartz. Uh, we're often installing washer dryers. So when you get to a $20,000 renovation, often there's an, a washer dryer install that's happening alongside. We might add an outdoor patio amenity if they're in a really like great outdoor, you know, uh, climate. Mm -hmm. People love having outdoor space. So these are additions that we do. And again, it's just upon natural turnover. And it's great. I mean, we're able to 
maintain the existing resident base. There's no, no need to pursue a new demographic. We find that we're able to serve the median income resident just fine. And they also appreciate having in-unit washer dryer and a quartz countertop. It can be, you know, an Uber driver and a teacher. We have, you know, a policeman and a graphic designer living in an apartment, right? These are mm -hmm. nice, normal people, families. And we have always an excellent team ready to serve them. Unlike often when we buy the buildings, they have a manager that doesn't answer the phone. You're doing a manual work order on a slip of paper. You're jamming under the manager's door. Mm -hmm. They don't have on-site maintenance. You know, we offer all the online amenities. So this can all be, people can submit their work orders from their telephone as they're going to bed at night. We just take the properties to a whole new level that the residents really appreciate. And we're giving them common area amenities as well that, you know, we'll take a old courtyard where some the prior owner filled in the swimming pool and add green space and barbecues and a fire pit and make it just a really wonderful place for the community to come together. It, it's interesting. I think in the multifamily business, the I think of the REITs as the example of companies that have raised the bar continuously on technology, resident service. This yeah. is not the industry it was 25 years ago. Right. From what companies of scale like Camden, UDR, Avalon Bay, EQR, companies like that can do, right. you're able to bring that level of attention. Even though you're small, those particularly technology-based services to residents is available to you as well. It is. And, and it's something that's really exciting to bring to these communities where, you know, a family ownership group isn't necessarily going to make that type of investment in their properties. They're kind of set it and forget it, keep it full, you know, hope that people don't submit very many work orders and, and they're, they're not making these sorts of investments. And I do think that those are features that residents want and appreciate. Right? Uh -huh. They want to be responded and, and to. And it's also a requirement. We're in 19 cities and a lot of those cities have one asset of ours. Right. So it's it's a it's a very distributed portfolio. So we need technology. Like it's not an option. So we need to come in and invest in that in that infrastructure all the time. Because as you said, a sprint. We're timing our teams on the speed to deliver that renovation of each unit. We're measuring the cost on each unit, and so it's 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 a very granular sort of factory we're running the deals through in order to get them where we need. In in any sense, apart from the capital that you have, what how you might differentiate from another value add player who may buy the same property or be your competition in a deal. Is this a bit the same story, except maybe you sprint a little bit quicker because you have to? What Or help me with that. Yeah, I think I think optimizing on the spend at the property level is a definitely a core competency for us. Mm -hmm. So um, if we if we spend too much at the asset level, then we do have to change the profile of the resident, which we don't want to. And when we have a large enough asset, often what we'll do is we'll renovate half the community. So you have a nicer mm -hmm. renovation spec to offer to 50%. And then if people are a little bit more cost conscious and they don't want to have the fancier countertop or the in-unit washer dryer, we have what's considered a classic unit. And that, that's more accessible and affordable. And for us, having being able to serve all of the above really helps us to achieve our goals and, and to attract as many residents as possible. Mm -hmm. Other differentiators, you know, look, I mean, the relationships that we have with vendors, with our teams, with the brokerage community. Mm -hmm. And so the, these little advantages along the way do really help. And really, it comes back to, you know, doing what we'll say we'll do. And when folks understand that, you know, the, there's a big advantage for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'd like to, you know, celebrate Marshall on that for a moment. He really does care so much about nurturing these brokerage relationships that we've, that he's cultivated over 
over over a decade and really seen brokers grow in their careers from being mm -hmm. maybe like the, the guy who does the cold calls to now they're like leading a, a major brokerage. He just really tries to respect their time, respect their efforts, you know, not jerk them around. Cause I think that some groups kind of say, oh, it's the brokers, don't worry about them. Marshall really cares about maintaining those relationships and treating them well so that um, we can have a much longer relationship. It brings transaction volume, mm -hmm. but it also just helps us have a, a better dynamic in the industry. When you know you're in for the long game, you approach relationships in a different way. And you just know, hey, we're gonna do five more deals together, so we're gonna do well on this deal. Versus, gosh, gotta get this one done, gotta get this one done. Absolutely, and everything is middle game, long game. I think people use long game too often. It's the middle game, which yeah, can, it's true. It, things come around very quickly, very, mm -hmm. very quickly. So, and it's, sure. it's strange that doing what you say you'll do and building relationships is sort of a differentiator. But actually, in this industry, we've we've seen there's a lot of people who don't do those things. It's well, interesting to say that. Yeah, shocking in the business. But but I think also if you're far further down in an organization, if you're three levels down in an organization and you're the deal person and you're bringing it into an organization that doesn't have context. Even though that organization's long-term, your relationships, now I know you then know that you care about your career and the relationships you can take to your next employer, but we know that's not gonna change. You just come with a different, you're calmer, thoughtfuler. It's a different approach altogether. Yeah. Talk about value-add in this marketplace. Is this a good time to be in the value-add business, particularly in the West Coast? Or is Core Plus an easier business? Is development an easier business for returns right now? I mean, investing is hard and everybody says it's expensive now, which it certainly is. Our 2010 deals were very expensive and they were very frightening to acquire as well. Right. So I, I don't remember a period where making acquisitions was easy, even though they might look like that in hindsight sometimes. If you really think back, they, none of them are. I think a lot of the demographics are in our favor. I think, I think the state should be building more units through proper leverage usage proper asset selection, not taking undue risks. You know, we just read Howard Marks' book on, on mastering the market cycle. And there's a lot of top market indications going on right now uh, that you see out in the marketplace. We're really mm -hmm. aware of that. So we're just constantly thinking of little things we can do on the fringes mm -hmm. to moderate risk for the investors. So with the housing shortage in California, how is what you're doing helping address the problem? And then also how does the industry get to the next place for the problem to start getting solved? Sure. I mean, we feel like taking care of the existing housing stock is critical to keeping the housing supply available and therefore affordable. So when we acquire an asset, I mean, it's common for us to spend as much as 70% of our renovation dollars on addressing the infrastructure. <laughs> so that's talking about roof replacement, water intrusion on the building envelope, replacing balconies, seismic retrofit, addressing the major systems that will ensure there's life safety for the residents and habitability. Because, I mean, that's our duty as, as a housing provider is to provide that. And again, often it's it's not provided for. And so we address that up front. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that's extremely important for, you know, responsible practitioners in this business to stay focused on, to support the housing supply and address affordability issues. The average cost of the existing housing supply as compared to the average cost replacement cost of a new unit, two thirds, half, whatever. It's a fraction of it, you're right. And development is so expensive and then caters to a diff very different clientele than we serve, mm -hmm. right? It's mostly class A six figure income residents. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a different demographic. So we take that responsibility really seriously. We bought a building last year in Union City and it was having 
all of these issues. We replaced all of the siding, a brand new roof, balcony replacements, spent $5 million up front, and the property is much better off for it, as are the residents. We've in last year also acquired an asset in Southern California where the district attorney of the county was suing the prior owner for mismanagement because he had treated his residents so poorly and the building was in such a state of disrepair. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to meet who was gonna own this building. So we met with the district attorney and worked with the city. They heard our approach to come in and address the life safety, address the habitability problems. And they got, were extremely supportive and got very excited about us being the owner mm -hmm. to take care of the resident base that was there that they had frankly gotten to know during all of the grievances that they'd had with a prior owner. So I do think that there's partnership that can happen here between public and private to help support the existing housing stock and ensure that our housing supply is at least upkept, if not, you know, we, we and continue to try to deliver more supply in the process. Mm -hmm. But you hold it for three, five years. So we don't know what happens next, although sometimes we do. What you do is you take an underloved property, you make it loved, not overloved. So I like that. And, but then you sell it to someone else who may want to do something very different with the resident population. Yeah, I think in many cases we return that that privately owned asset back into the private ownership realm, mm -hmm. which is interesting, right? So if you're right. a family looking to park cash and and have your retirement, why not buy an asset that has the brand new roof and the screen tenants and the new windows and you know just that is that is in a state they could own it for a very long time and mm -hmm. and they're typically pretty moderate with their with their rent increases and so so returning that product once the infrastructure is fixed back to the high net worth community actually makes a lot of sense. In other mm -hmm. cases, we're selling to perpetual owners, whether it's a fund or a family where they'll own indefinitely and they really appreciate the infrastructure work we've done. We've seen a lot of cases of that. Yeah. And then also two instances in the last few years where we've sold assets to low-income housing providers. Lower after they buy it from you. So talk about that and what kind of buyers they were. Absolutely. So we had one, one project in Silicon Valley where it was donated to a low-income housing fund. The owner acquired it and, and immediately donated it to a charitable housing group uh, that would lower the rent systematically 20 to 30%. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was really exciting. Talk about a win-win for yeah. everybody. Very recently, we sold a project in Huntington Beach to Catalyst Housing, our, our friend uh, Jordan Moss. Yeah, Jordan. It was really a perfect outcome in terms of we came in, um, you know, Julia's team went and, and demolished the the leasing office, we added 100 patios, we optimized the parking, we did a ton of work at the asset that allowed the city of Huntington Beach to view a 1970s asset as something they would own, want to own a long time. Had we not done that infrastructure work, that deal would not be low-income housing today that it is. And mm -hmm. so then Jordan and Catalyst can go in today and, and rescreen all of the tenants and systematically lower the rents. And it's really exciting for us uh, to have that kind of outcome. and. You think about it returning re us returning capital back to our charitable sources mm -hmm. and then systematically lowering the rents for the residents in the, that town mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the e side of esg and we two podcasts we just had uh during the month of august were this just blew me away 40 percent of global carbon emissions comes from the built environment two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it comes from the existing built environment and one quarter comes from new construction and tearing down buildings. So what we do with our buildings when we replace a system is a huge deal. Any comments about that in terms of the renovations you guys do? Sure. No, we um, have always taken you know, ESG as just sort of like an organic part of, of what we're all about. 
We've identified a director of ESG that we are really excited to have on board. He also runs our asset management group, which mm -hmm. to us is, it's a very appropriate, right? He's able to operationalize our mm -hmm. ESG goals into the business plans of our assets so that we can deliver on sustainability goals, deliver on social goals, take care of our residents and mm -hmm. really make it uh, part of our business as opposed to you know, a headline. So, I mean, we're not a developer, so we're not going to deliver, you know, platinum lead certified assets. That's that's right. much harder when you're acquiring existing properties. But our asset management team and our director of ESG developed a, a list of 50 different sustainability practices mm -hmm. that we can implement at our existing assets. I mean, examples of that include you know, implementing LED lighting, light and water sensors, putting in tankless water heaters, using low VOC paint, recycled and recyclable carpet. There's there's a lot of different initiatives that can be utilized that mm -hmm. help with sustainability. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're really excited to do so, but we also find that they're frankly accretive to our business plans. Is the cost of those bigger things operationally something as a value add provider you get paid for at the end of the day when the property is sold? Because you may have seven year payback and it helps operations, but it's gonna help it then. And do buyers think about that? In terms of like a roof system or something of that nature? Yeah, if you spend another 20% on the roof system, you may not get paid back for that if you're selling it three years, maybe you do, I don't know. It's harder for certain to generate an ROC. So we analyze return on cost on everything that we spend money on and it is, it is harder on something like a roof system. Residents don't come and say, oh great, I love your new roof, yeah. Here, uh, here's another $25. It doesn't work that way, but as Marshall mentioned, when we sell, we often find that buyers really appreciate that these systems have been addressed versus mm -hmm. somebody who, uh, when they do their diligence and they realize, wow, you still have a failing roof, you still have failing balconies, well, you know, I, I'm not gonna pay you on the exit as much as I would. Like we always say to our teams, you know, there's no mission without margin. Like, and that's authentic to the way that we think just good asset management should be done is these things should be making returns. Right. And we can have our cake and eat it too, which is really exciting. I remember eight years ago, 10 years ago, talking about just greening everything. And honestly, we had no interest in that. Just mm -hmm. greening, you know, that, that seemed like that was against the mission of our investors. ESG makes a lot of sense to us because we're, we're actually able to increase margins, mm -hmm. you know, while benefiting these environmental fronts. And one thing that is exciting is, you know, our investors are not pushing us on this front. Uh, I think they will be hmm. soon. So they're not? No, I think they're, they're asking about it. And so that implementing this with, with Bakari's lead in, in our team, the uh -huh. ESG front, we can do it at our own pace, which has been really nice to do it right. Uh -huh. The same thing on the diversity efforts within the team. You know, that was something that, you know, Julia really taught to me, you know, in co-running this business with a female co-CEO, her view on investments is different than mine. And mm -hmm. so her, her life experience is different than mine, even though we grew up in the same house. And I came to understand that having diversity in the team in thought as well, and in, in whether that uh, manifests itself in, in racial diversity or however it comes up, it just makes us have better, make better decisions. Our org looks a lot like our tenant base, which mm -hmm. we think is appropriate. And so we're trying to continue to press that lead versus play catch up. And I think the catch up piece of it is, is super challenging. And, and some, some groups do have to do that. And we may be in a position at some point where we have to do that too. That is more challenging. Um, so it's something that we're, we're excited to be in a in nice footing at this point. Yeah. So before we close, I, I want to ask you about the values and uniqueness of a family business and the family business in the second generation that might one day go to the third generation. You have a long time before the third generation because I know your kids and they're not, they're not ready. <laughs> but 
but they're, they're eating Cheerios. No, yeah, but but just talk about that for a few minutes. You know, I think nepotism was something that Julia and I we don't like that word a lot. Yeah, and I think it kept us from thinking about this business seriously at all. Uh-huh. Um, so for us, we have we have a, a ton of respect for the business that was built and 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 given given to us. But we really want this to be a private equity firm. This is this is not a firm that we look at as giving to our kids. We want our investment committee to allow us to stay in the business. Mm-hmm. And the investment committee are not family members. You know, this is a private equity firm that should have a transition as a private equity firm. And frankly, if you know, I wish I wish our father was with us longer, but I don't know if I would have joined had he still been here. You know, there was a unique opportunity to be an entrepreneur with Julia as partners. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a little different than a typical family story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, third generation is not something that we think about. It's a fair deal. I think private equity firms is a wonderful way to look at it, although it's tempered and changed by your being co-CEOs and family in a second generation, because there's something that it represents alongside just purely the investment thesis. I think it's a reverence for the past, the same way as if this was a 40-year-old business that was a private equity firm. I think we think about it as we're partners. Mm-hmm. We happen to grow up together, mm-hmm. but uh, we're, we're partners in this in this private equity firm. Yeah, I mean, we want to be here as our on, on our own merits by virtue of our real estate background experience and mm-hmm. drive we bring every day. It really um, it should not be because we had the parents we did or that we're related. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we just bring our hustle to the, our verticals all the time. And we are so excited to be working with our investment committee, a diverse team of people who bring different perspectives. I really think that our different perspectives, our differences are our superpower. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to come together when we evaluate deals and hear different people's perspectives and stress testing and questioning. I think it raises the game overall. But yeah, it's really about the table of people and not just about Marshall or I or you know our history. And I go back to just appealing to outstanding team members who want to come to IEC. I think right. it's motivational for them to think that this could be theirs. And we, we're, we're very serious about that. Totally true. I love it. Okay, last question on leading voices is also, and now we get to get two answers, your advice for a young person coming into the real estate business. Find a company that will empower you and let you run at all kinds of things, take on a lot of responsibility and go for it. Like get in there, get your hands dirty, mm-hmm. say yes, and learn as much as you can and prioritize that over brand or title. Thanks for your advice. I like this concept I've heard over time of just be willing to burn the lifeboats. So I think a lot of people are hedging their career constantly, constantly evaluating other mm. paths, other roles, what their friends are doing. I think if you find an area that you wanna commit years to, put your head down and hustle and good things will happen when you pop your head up two, four, six, ten years later. That's wonderful advice. It's interesting because it takes a long time to become a master and to build the relationships to become a master. And during that period of insecurity, you do have to burn the lifeboats. And a lot of people say, I'm going to go switch because I'm not there yet. But you're, it takes a long time to get there yet. Cool. Hey, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your coming today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.